Back in 2010, I was really excited. A friend of mine was visiting, and I had tickets to go see The Tonight Show when Conan O'Brien was the host. I was so excited. I had no idea what was really brewing over at NBC Universal, and much to my dismay, just two weeks before we were supposed to attend the Conan O'Brien Tonight Show, uh, you may know the story, Conan O'Brien got fired. What really happened was is that someone, Jay Leno, had promised him for years he was going to get to take over. Jay Leno moved to a primetime slot uh, for his own primetime show. Didn't work out so well for Jay, so he reneged on his promise and took back the Tonight Show, displacing Conan O'Brien. That was a tremendous disappointment to this man, Conan, who actually is a really great guy as far as I can tell. I, I'm a big admirer. And, uh, and I was severely disappointed that I wasn't going to get to see him. But I did, in fact, get to enjoy his recollections about that experience in an online speech he gave to the 2011 class at Dartmouth University. And if you've never seen this graduation speech online, let me commend it to you and your web surfing and your YouTube collecting uh, this is really, and I use it in my speech class at Providence Christian College, it's one of, the, one of the great commencement speeches you will ever hear. And he recounts the disappointments, the struggles, and uh, through all of the comedic fun he has with the graduating class at Dartmouth, and he has some fun, he says something that is super profound as far as I'm concerned. And I quote, It is not easy, but if you accept your misfortune and handle it right, your perceived failure can become a catalyst for profound reinvention. Conan O'Brien came face to face with the painful reality that many of us have, and I've written about it in my blog, which I just posted yesterday, about suffering and my personal experience with suffering and disappointment and the benefits that come as the, the result of them. And Conan figured out something, and that is that although we hate difficulty and we hate suffering and we hate trials, and a lot of us are not particularly fond of discipline, it is ultimately something that is really, really good for us. And if we can sit in it and enjoy it, well, we can actually take great heart that God uses, not just the difficult, but the mistakes we make to mold us into the people that he would want us to be. We are just two Sundays from uh, from concluding our Old Testament heroes study that started back in September. Today we'll deal with David next week, his son Solomon, to conclude things. King David is an archetype of Jesus. When we think of David and when the nation of Israel as a whole thinks of David, even contemporary Israelites, contemporary Jews... Uh, have the highest of admiration for David. And you can tell by the fact that their national flag contains on it the star of David. David is seen as the, the ultimate in expression of the health of the kingdom of Israel. Just in a nationalistic sense, as, as Jews look back at their history, the, the, the greatest moments in their history were when David was on the throne. And David himself was uh, said to have been a man after God's own heart. We've covered this in previous sermons, but David was the triple threat of his day. He was good-looking, he was a musician, he was a warrior. 
means that he was a man's man and he was, every man wanted to be him and every woman wanted to be with him. I mean, this is the kind of guy that was Mick Jagger and Muhammad Ali all rolled up into one. He had everything that a person, that a, that a, a female of the species would want to marry. Great promise of your progeny being strong and athletic and yet tender and sensitive and dramatic and excited. And David had everything. He's like the ultimate man. And yet David, like the rest of us, was the ultimate sinful man too. He was 30 years old when he became king. He reigned for 40 years. So from 30 to age 70, he ran the show in Israel. Like King Saul before him, David's initial response to the grace of God, which could be the story of all of us, is humble amazement. Why have you selected me? But in those four decades of being king, with all the power and all the trappings of success, David, like all of us, began to take his eyes off of the Lord, and his broken nature caused him to set his heart on his worldly idols. It is often said, and I have searched long and wide for the, for the author of this quote, but it is true that quite often our gifts can fly us to heights where our character cannot sustain us. The truth be told is, is that nobody, and I mean no human being, is naturally capable of handling the adulation and the praise and the worship and all of the things that come with fame and fortune without it corrupting your thinking at some level. David is probably most known uh, as the king of Israel for one particular tragic moment of, uh, of moral collapse. His sin with Bathsheba, the sin of committing adultery, led to a domino effect whereby David not only would become guilty of adultery, he would conspire to have her husband killed and then cover it up. The kind of events that you look at in David's life from this event of which I speak and today's passage that we'll look at are the things that movies get made out of. I mean, when I, not only just about David, most of the dramas that we would watch have all of these elements in them. They're fascinating. Think of the king, and how many movies have you watched about a corrupt politician who gets in deep and does something he shouldn't do and then has somebody killed and tries to cover it up, and then some great person comes and uncovers it all, and you think, that was a great movie. And this is really what was taking place in the life of David. David has an affair to cover it up. He sends her husband back into battle and, and has him killed. Now, when, when he covers it up and thinks he's got it covered, David moves on in life, and then the Lord gets involved and speaks to Nathan the prophet who reveals to David that David is messed up and then something big. And this is where David would actually pray in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. When David was finally confronted with this sin, he confesses it. 
and calls upon the mercy of God. Now, one of the things that I have enjoyed about this series, for my own personal benefit, is a continuous weekly reminder that God does not stop and cease using his people because of the struggles and the sin in their life. I cannot tell you how often, as a church planter, I will find myself asking the question, what am I doing wrong that our church isn't growing? Or what am I doing wrong that more people aren't coming to know Christ? Or what, you know, I tend to become all self-centered about those things. And so for me, it's really great to be able to read the Old Testament characters and recognize that Jesus uses broken people. Now, practically speaking, you may find yourself saying, I really think the mission of Prism Church is really cool. We're here to revive believers and reach friends and renew culture, but you kind of sort of feel like you might have to be a bystander because you're not very holy or you're not very well-read in the Bible or your theological understanding is substandard or you have nowhere near the prayer life of that person over there. And I'm here to encourage you today, as I've tried to each week, that this is not the standard that God is looking for, for whether or not he's going to use you to reach your friends and family to reach our community for Christ. He isn't looking for your ability, he's looking for your availability. And our humility, our willingness to continue on as his children, broken and fallen, this is what God wants to do in and through us as a church. Now, part of our responsibility is to pray, to seek him, to ask him to bless so that when we do receive from him in our lives and all the ways that he would provide, that he would be sure to receive the the honor and the thanks for the things he's done. This week, the narrative we're looking at in 1 Kings 1 is really the fallout from David's sin with Bathsheba. Now, mind you, he does this really early on in his reign as king. And then 40 years later, as he's coming to his death, he is still dealing with the ramifications of the mess he created. And I know personally that one of the things I deal with that is the most painful to deal with is not necessarily just trouble for trouble's sake. I mean, daily irritations and traffic on the 210 and all those things are, are enough to make a person kind of lose their stuff. But I'm talking about when you make a mistake that is really profound, when you blow it huge, when you look back and you have regrets, and how do you process those regrets? Do you just sit in your angst and go, oh, what did I do? I really blew it. I wished I hadn't done that. I just have regret. Or is there a way, is there something we can learn from David's life that would help us to see that even the sinful mistakes we make in our life, that God chooses to use those things too to help us see more of his grace. In David's particular case, he is dealing with a coup that is taking place before King David uh, ascended the throne It was communicated to him that his descendants were going to continue on and lead for many, many, many years. It was not a rule or a law in Israel, though, as it is like in England, that the firstborn child is going to be the heir. That was not codified in any way, shape, or form. So in this case, in today's passage, 1 Kings chapter 1, 
we're going to look at both the natural difficulties of living in a broken world and how God uses that, and then also how God has miraculously made true the promise that we cling to from Romans 8, 28, a verse that many of us have memorized and is super familiar to the Christian, but God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that means that even the things that are difficult and challenging and even the things that are difficult and challenging brought about by our own bad decisions and, cha- and sin. God, in his marvelous providence, mixes it all together to bring about, bring about our good and his glory. So let's look at a couple quick things from David's life in this passage. And the first is this. God sovereignly uses our broken world to strengthen us. God sovereignly uses our broken world to strengthen us. Now, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. Now, David had multiple wives, and this is part of the problem. Adonijah was the now oldest of his living sons. And so he presumed, and I'm sure his mother encouraged it, and others around him that thought they could sycophantically live according to Uh, live by the juice that's going on in his life, they all probably encouraged him, go get that throne. David's dying. It's time for you to ascend. He puts himself forward. He gets the chariots and horses and all the men. And then we see in this verse, verse 6, his father never rebuked him by saying, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Absalom had died. So Adonijah very logically thought he was going to be a part of the next reigning kingdom, that he was going to be the one to ascend the throne. I think of this when I, when I watch my favorite movie of all time, which is Gladiator, with Russell Crowe and Richard Harris. I know. I watch it when I'm feeling kind of cowardly. I just go, you know what, I need something to give me inspiration. And so I, I'll watch Gladiator, and I, I quote lines from Gladiator. It's sad, and you're allowed to feel sorry for me. But the, the plot of Gladiator is that the, the son who assumes incorrectly that his father is going to name him the next emperor when he dies, when he finds out that he's not going to be, he assassinates the king and then takes the throne. It's, it's the essence of what is a coup. And this is what's going on in, in David's world. Whether or not, and the text doesn't seem to indicate that Adonijah knew the promise that David had made to Solomon's mother, that Solomon was going to be king. Let's assume for a second he didn't know. He's saying, I don't care. But I think he did know because he purposefully did not ask Solomon to be a part of the experience. And my guess is that if Solomon knew he was going to be king, spoiled little guy that he was, he probably mouthed off about it at some point. All I know is that what the text says, and that is that Adonijah, without the king initiating the process, really taking advantage of his father's broken state, puts himself forward to be king. Suffering is part of life on this planet. Theologians refer to the now and the not yet, the already and the not yet. The truth be told in Christian theology is we believe that Jesus Christ in dying on the cross for our sins purchased for us divine health, divine prosperity, divine everything. But 
we will not ex- see and experience that in its fullness until all of us are face to face with him in eternity. The, while Jesus purchased everything we could ever want, including physical healing, he doesn't guarantee that we'll get all of that in this life. In other words, all of us are going to die. That's going to happen unless the Lord Jesus returns visibly before now and that time. Anybody who would tell you, and there are plenty of televangelists who would, is that the reason you're not experiencing all of these divine blessings is because you haven't put enough faith into the work, that you haven't done enough to actually get all of the prosperity to come to you, that you haven't exercised and and really put into practice what Jesus has purchased for you. They're trying to sell you books, friends. They're trying to sell you on a concept, an industry, a brand that will get you to buy their stuff. The scriptures seem to indicate that in this world, in our life, even as believers, there is going to be struggle. And if you don't believe me, ask 11 of the original 12 apostles who all died martyrs' deaths for the faith. And it wasn't because they weren't applying faith principles that were created in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, I got to tell you, friends, this is, this is the essence of the gospel. And the beautiful reality is that, is that is that God is using this broken world, using this difficult and, and sin-cracked world to create within us great things. Uh, Conan O'Brien also said in this speech, <laughs> you know, you've heard it famously said, uh, that that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Uh, he's actually quoting Nietzsche. Uh, but what O'Brien says that I think is funny is that Nietzsche failed to emphasize that it almost kills you. You know, and so difficulty is not fun. Struggle is not enjoyable. We don't find ourselves th- thrilled at the prospect of feeling poorly or, or staring down the barrel at an amazing disappointments. But yet God has chosen and sovereignly uses this broken world to bring strength into our lives. Now, we see that some of the difficulties... Some of the challenges we face are the result of our nature. I would call it our ancestors' decisions to rebel. The curse that Adam and Eve brought into the world through their disobedience to God in Genesis. All we have to do is look around and see that our world is broken, not just staring at the weather and the natural disasters that take place that weren't designed to be a part of the world when God originally created Eden, but the way people deal with each other and our own selfish, sinful inclinations to put ourselves before everybody else. These things in and of themselves should be enough evidence that our world is broken. We see it, though, in verse 1, where, where David is qualified, characterized as very old. And in verse 3 of 1 Kings 1, where, where the king was unable to have sexual relations with this beautiful young Shunammite woman. And trust me, this is not a man who was used to restraining himself. We see the broken world in which we live. King David, if there's anybody, a man after God's own heart who deserved to live forever, it was David. If there was a human being of our brokenness, our best guy is King David, and he is dying. All of us are going to pass away. And that pain, that suffering is just part of the world in which we live. And yet God uses it. 
He takes the difficulties, he takes the pain, and he brings about good things. Other suffering in our lives is a result of our own sin and rebellion. And you see this in verse 5, when David's rebellion with Bathsheba is what created this succession confusion anyway. Brings up the obvious question, which is the question about polygamy. You know, oftentimes people will ask, you know, all these Old Testament guys, they had multiple spouses, so it doesn't seem that God ever condemns polygamy. What are we supposed to do about that? David had five spouses. This would create some confusion when it came time to name a successor. Well, I'll say this. Just because something is practiced in the Bible doesn't mean God condones it. It's a principle that we refer to as descriptive passages versus prescriptive prescriptive passages. So just because slavery is described in the Old and New Testament doesn't mean that the Bible is saying it's okay. It's just saying culturally that was what was going on. When it talks about divorce and you see people divorcing each other, just because you don't see a divine judgment of it on the spot does not mean to imply that it was okay with God. You can look in the New Testament in Acts chapter 1, verse 26, when they were trying to replace Judas, who hung himself, the 11 apostles previous to Pentecost decided, I got an idea. Let's cast lots and figure out who's next. This is not the prescribed way we're going to choose elders in the next couple years here at prison. We're not going to go out back and play craps to see who wins. It's just describing what was going on. The New Testament forbids leaders in the church from practicing polygamy. In Timothy 3 and Titus 1, we're told, we're just supposed to be the husbands of one wife. And yet God blesses the patriarchs who, who practice polygamy. Now, I think that's more evidence of what we've been talking about, which is that in spite of our hard-heartedness, in spite of our brokenness, God longs to work through us. God longs to be in us. Matt Chandler, who's the president of the Acts 29 Network, has a great book called The Explicit Gospel. I recommend it to you. In it, he says, the idolatry that exists in man's heart always wants to lead him away from his Savior and back to self-reliance, no matter how pitiful that self-reliance is or how many times it's betrayed him. This is the nature of our broken will, our broken world. We are prone to wander, and Lord, we feel it. We sing it. And we know this is the case. And God superintends all of that the mistakes we make, uh, the, the, the broken world in which we live, and he works it all together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, which Renee read earlier during singing, is actually a great reminder for all of us as we endure hardship. In verse 7, endure hardship is discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we have respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You and I 
are challenged to look at the difficulties in our lives, both the things that are byproducts of the sinful world we live in, the, the nature of uh, the world in which we live in our own broken nature, the mistakes, the choices, the poor choices others make. We are challenged to see those things used in God's sovereign plan to bring about something wonderful for him and for us. Now, it's not easy to do that. It's not easy to trust him. But he calls us to it. He calls us to it so that we can see more about him than we have in the past. One of the great singers in black gospel history is Andre Crouch. And one of his most famous songs is called Through It All. And the final stanza of Through It All, he writes... I thank God for the mountains and I thank God for the valleys. I thank him for the storms he brought me through. For if I never had a problem, I wouldn't know that God could solve them. I'd never know what faith in God would do. You know, my son is 19 years old and he's extraordinarily independent. Um, He's he's stubborn like his mom. I'm just kidding, like his dad. (laughs) And anybody who's spent any time with Carolyn knows that I was joking, uh, that he is uh, in, in the parts of my personality that I wish he was more like his mom. Unfortunately, he's more like me. And, uh, and one of the things that he's, he's super-duper independent, super-duper, like, uh, strong-headed. And, and so, you know, if you say, hey, can I help you with that, he tends to be one that would go, no, I got it, thanks. And, and really, really doesn't like it if you kind of intrude into his world. And so a lot of the time... Uh, he functions in a very, at a very high level, independent of me, until something tragic happens, like his car gets towed. And then all of a sudden, it's, Dad, where are you? Dad, I need you. Dad, I have a flat tire. How do I fill up a tire with air? See, these are all questions that 19-year-olds think they know the answer to until it happens to them and they realize they don't. See, all of us are put in places in our world where we are forced to call on God. And I'm here to encourage you today that God plans it that way because he just likes to hear from you. When my son calls me and says, hey, I got a flat tire, I can't wait to go help him. You know why? Because I can't wait to spend time with him. He finds it strange that I would get there in such a hurry. But I love it. And and I'm just like grateful any time he'd want to spend time with me, even if it's just me coming to his aid. There are a lot of people that would try to make you feel guilty about that you don't pray more. And the way they do that is they just beat you like, you should pray more. Don't you know the God of all eternity? What a loser of a Christian you are. And that that is supposed to be what motivates you to go home and like kneel next to your bed and weep and talk about how bad you are at praying. I am much more drawn to prayer when I hear the truth of the gospel, which is that God actually longs to spend time with you that he created you for his enjoyment, that God's pleasure is listening and interacting and working with and working through you. See, I think that's what draws me to want to follow him more. This is the nature of why God uses the broken world because like Andre Crouch, I can tell you that if I didn't have any problems, I unfortunately am so broken I probably wouldn't call on God. I wish I could sit up in front of you like Joel Osteen and tell you that I could do it, but I can't. 
If I, if I didn't have difficulty, I know I'm broken. And I wouldn't be committed to the things that God would want me to be committed to. And so I can thank God for the trials because he uses them and he uses our broken world to strengthen us. The second thing I'm really excited to share with you this morning is this, is that not only does he use our broken world to strengthen us, he graciously redeems the broken world to save us. And this is where we get to see the gospel really cool in this. Uh, In verse 11 it says, Then Nathan asked Bathsheba. And and I, I want you to see the importance of this, that suffering has a redemptive purpose. It has a purpose of bringing about change and and bringing about something that will actually visibly show and tangibly show the grace and care of God in our lives. And it is significant that Nathan is the one, Nathan the prophet is the one who pursued Bathsheba. What this tells you is that God was intervening. He wasn't waiting for Bathsheba to recognize that the world was falling apart around her and that God had made a promise God was already working to correct the situation before Bathsheba even knew what was going on. And that is true for you and me. It's true for us in an eternal sense. Long before you and I were born, Romans 5, 8 says, long before we even sinned, Christ died for us. I mean, we, Jesus had our redemption plan figured out before you and I were a, a dream in our parents' minds. Suffering has a redemptive purpose, and and we here at PRISM will continue to encourage all of us to see suffering and difficulty through the lens of Jesus. And what I mean by that is, is that God sovereignly, providentially used the evil of others to bring about our redemption. He purchased you and I In order for that to happen in time and in space, he had to use the evil of other human beings to bring it about. Now, he didn't have to. He chose to. He chose to allow Jesus to be tortured by evil people so that we could be saved. How that should encourage you and I is that God, somehow or another, and I don't like it all the time, but it's nonetheless true, is that when you feel like you're being badgered by people who've got so much and you don't, or you feel like you're way behind the curve, or you feel like you've been mistreated and others are trying to control and harm your life, understand that God is still in control even of that. I don't know why he has chosen to you those things, but apparently it is to bring about something great. It's to bring about some evidence of his redeeming power. In Absalom's, in Adonijah's case, he seemed to have everything on his side. People, leaders, being the oldest son. And yet in Bathsheba's case, who was promised that her son Solomon would be king, she's able to say, I don't need all of the power and all of the glory and I don't need all of the pomp and all the circumstances because I have God. And Nathan came to show her this. He says to her in verse 12, now let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. God's people, God's people, us. We are an intervening, redeeming force when we give 
Christmas presents to families from Door of Hope. We are functioning in this very same role. In the new year, we're going to have a number of times where we're going to work as a church to intervene. And we're functionally going to be that person that is used by God to show the broken world Christ has come to save. And the way he does that is by people intervening. We get to be part of that. See, when God redeems our broken worlds, when he comes to you and me in the midst of our suffering, there are two things that it does. One is suffering causes us to seek the Lord wholeheartedly. In verses 9 and, nine through, nine and 10, you see what happens when somebody isn't seeking the Lord. They try to mount a defense and they get as many people together as they can. Uh, Adonijah gathers up all of his brothers except for Solomon, all the royal officials, but he doesn't invite the prophet, and he certainly doesn't invite Solomon. So you see somebody who's saying, I'm going to do the exact opposite of what somebody does when they're a child of God. Matt Chandler in the explicit gospel says this, the marker of those who understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when they stumble and fall, when they screw up, They run to God and not from him because they clearly understand that their acceptance before God is not predicated upon their behavior, but on the righteous life of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death. When the world is stacked against you, when you realize you've got nothing, nothing to offer, this is where we begin to seek God wholeheartedly. When we feel like we're being conspired against or we feel like we're just out of options, we begin to seek the Lord wholeheartedly. But one of the things that we get to see in suffering, one of the redemptive purposes is that suffering causes us not only to seek the Lord wholeheartedly, but it causes us to see the Lord's whole heart. I love verse 12 of 1 Kings 1. Let me advise you how you can save your life and the life of your son. Do you realize, friends, that this is God's heart to save you? to rescue you, to take the things that are challenging in your life and to show you once again the depths of his love. Hebrews 12.10, we read it earlier, our fathers disciplined us for a while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. God's heart is that his kids would listen to him and follow him and when we mess up and oftentimes... (laughs) Only when we mess up do we have the opportunity to see and experience the grace and forgiveness of God. And remember, when we were rescued by Jesus and he came into our lives, it wasn't just him forgiving us our sins. As Chandler was saying, it is the, is the righteousness of Christ that is imputed, given to us, that makes us acceptable before God. He didn't just erase all of our bad deeds, past, present, and future. He credited to us the good works of Jesus. We stand in the Lord's presence only because of what Christ has done. It is the gospel of Jesus. We see the heart of God to redeem our sins, not simply in his payment for our sins, which is at the essence of the word redemption, but in his sovereign plan to use the evil of others 
to accomplish his redemptive purposes. This is really encouraging to those of us who've made huge mistakes in our lives. If you look back and you go, man, I wished I hadn't done that, I'm confident that something has changed in you because of that regret. I can tell you I've had a number of places in my life where I look back and I still think and feel the sense of regret, either the way I treated people, decisions I made in haste, choices I made that caused trouble for others. These things still break my heart. And you might say, well, haven't you been forgiven? Sure. So why would you meditate on it, Pastor Chuck? Well, I liken it to like marinating a piece of beef. There is something about recognizing and sitting in and understanding, Lord, this was a really bad choice I made that enables me to see I don't want to do that again. There's something about recognizing that, you know, I made a choice that had a negative effect on my life and the lives of other people's that adds a flavor to my life. There's something about suffering and pain when you really experience it that enables you to feel it in other people's lives. And this is the essence of what Jesus has called us to do and he said, share one, another, share one another's burdens. If you've never had any burdens, how in the world is God gonna use you to ever have somebody else experience that? If you've never had your heart broken, what are you gonna do when somebody's crying in front of you because their heart has been broken. You're, you're going to be unsympathetic? Are you going to give them trite little Bible verses? Or are you going to be able to genuinely look them in the eye and say, I, I have really felt what you're feeling. See, when God redeems our sin and struggle, it is so that we can be a blessing to others. It is so that we can demonstrate His redeeming grace to other people as well. I share a little of this struggle again at chuckryer.com, another plug for my blog site, shameless as it is. But one of the things I talk about is how I, I really believe that the crash that I experienced in my life a few years ago has changed me. I mean, literally changed me in ways that I don't think I would have changed in the absence of it. And one of the quotes that has been encouraging to me over the years is one by Charles Spurgeon. And I leave you with this today. Let the winds rush howling forth and let the waters lift themselves up then. Though the vessel may rock, and her deck may be washed with waves, and her mast may creak under the pressure of the full and swelling sail, it is then that she makes headway towards her desired haven. Let us pray. Lord, today we are humbled that you love us, and all of us are facing difficulties and have a tendency to just be upset that we're facing difficulties and don't look at the grander purpose associated with them. Father, would you help us?